Welcome to the Frontline Industry Podcast. Every week, we talk with top senior executives to get their advice on positively impacting frontline employees, companies, and customers. On today's episode, The Power of Empathy and Kindness, I talk with Esther Lee, VP of Global Learning and Development at McCann World Group. And boy, for 2023, this episode is one of the highlights of my year. Esther talks about a situation that made her cry for weeks as a special ed teacher in the Bronx, the impact of her faith and her career, why you should train empathy and kindness in your organization, and much more. Don't go anywhere. The Frontline Industry Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the Frontline Industry Podcast. My name is Joel, and joining me today is Esther Lee. Esther comes from a lengthy background in working in the HR and learning and development space. She currently works at McCann World Group, the irrefutable leader in the business of creativity. They're united across over 100 countries by a single mission, that is to help brands earn a meaningful role in people's lives. Now, Esther, as I mentioned, comes from a lengthy background comes from Harvard with her master's degree in educational technology and instructional design and New York University with her bachelor's of science in general and special education with a concentration in English. We're actually going to start, Esther, talking about that educational background. But first, welcome to the Frontline Industry Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm so happy you're here. And uh, I got to say, after we met and talked on the phone the first time, I was just all smiles, excited about having this conversation with you. I, I felt so uh, connected with you in a purpose way as far as uh, the motivations we both share um, when it comes to people and, and culture and things like that. So I'm stoked to flesh some of those out with you in our conversation. But going back to the educator side of things uh, in your early adult life and as you began your career, um, what were those beginnings like? What, what did you think you'd be doing right now? What were you initially planning on, on doing with your career? I love this question because I can talk about this for hours. Um, I started my career as a special education teacher in the Bronx. I taught at the most restrictive environment known in District 75, which is a district that's um, 100% special education population only in New York City. Wow. Um, and in order for a student to be placed at a school that I taught at, they had to be diagnosed with emotional disturbance and have a really long track record of serious violent behaviors and multiple disorders like schizophrenia, dyslexia, personality disorder, um, to just name a few. Um, and I chose to work at the school. A lot of people ask me, why? Why that school? Right. You know, I um, saw other student teachers at NYU giving up in this setting. They were placed and they would either leave after a day, a week, or a month. Um, and I wanted to really see what the fuss was about, uh, for <laughs> one. And, and two, I was always interested in special education more than general education, um, there's a rewarding effect of teaching kids with um, certain special needs and uh, just different kinds of strengths and learning styles. And so I really wanted to be head on with that. Um, and honestly, to my surprise, showing my students consistent routines and more importantly, consistent love and kindness um, mm -hmm. help them really become better classmates to each other and also perform a lot better on state exams. Um, wow. And so this, you know, this was 
mind blowing to me. The kids that like every other education system had given up on or other teachers had kind of threw their hands up in the air for all they really needed was consistent love and kindness and empathy and just compassion for them to actually feel safe enough to start wanting to learn and actually learn. Um, And so I started thinking about this notion early on in my career. So I got to ask, because I have no background in that field at all. What is the rationale for putting kids with those challenging backgrounds all in one room with you. That seems like the most daunting, challenging (laughs) educational environment for not only them, but for yourself. I mean, having one kid in a Sunday school classroom uh, who's got some challenging needs is hard enough in those scenarios. (laughs) But I mean, let alone a whole room in an official educating environment. Talk to me about the rationale for that and, and why that made sense. I think the rationale probably has to come from the state education department. Mm-hmm. But I will say what I uh, was taught was really that, well, one, because they're so um, violent in nature, whether it's from their environment or they have a medical condition, um, this was their literal last chance at public education. Mm-hmm. Um, if they had added mm-hmm. to their long record of violence, then they would be hospitalized. Um, and no longer will be considered a student of public education system. And so my goal as a teacher was always, let's get these kids into a less restrictive environment than the one that they're in now. And less restrictive meant not necessarily a general education classroom that most of us um, were uh, part of, but really just um, a larger ratio between student to teacher than where they were now, or a fewer students with violent nature and so starting to go slowly um, back into the general education system which is very unlikely for kids with um, such long history of violence but even one layer down would mean that they no longer have this um, fear of being hospitalized for good what was the hardest day for you in that job Oh, it's going to get dark. There were many, many um, dark days that I, they all come to me at once when you ask that question. But the very last day when I thought it's time for me to go to grad school and kind of take a breather was at the end of the school day. Um, And can't mention student names, but there was a little girl who um, was sexually assaulted by her biological father and was living with her mother and her mother had started dating a a drug dealer um, Mm -hmm. and the relationship had taken off. And uh, so the mother started neglecting the little girl. The little girl um, also worked with me for over a year. She was in my classroom uh, to really get her grades up and do better. She learned coping skills she was starting to learn to be kind and be a good classmate to her friends. And so to me, I didn't think that she had um, an actual condition that she was a product of her environment. And so I always talked to her about like, you're going to get to a less restrictive environment if you keep this up and you're doing a great job. She scored threes and fours on the state exams, which is if they're out of fours, it's unheard of at the school. Um, So we knew that she was going to be, put into a less restrictive environment the next year. 
But then on the last day of school, I found out that the mom had sent the little girl back to her father. Um, and that was kind of it for me. Uh, I knew that I couldn't come back uh, to, and this wasn't um, particularly any one school I, I can't really name, yeah, but yeah. Um, that was the moment when it really just got to my guts. And I said, I really need a breather. This is a little too much for me. And I think I cried for weeks after that. And I even wrote about it in my essay for grad school. Um, it just kind of stayed with me. That's so tough. The helplessness that you have in those scenarios can eat away at you for a long time. And you wonder where this kid is now and hopefully they're okay. And yeah, it's a, it's a broken system and it's, it is very sad, but how, how did that experience change the trajectory of your life going through that educating educational environment and the pivot you eventually made to doing what you're doing now? Talk me through that story. Yeah, so in the classroom, obviously, seeing the impact of love and kindness play out within children, it's every day so different, but you could tell uh, when a teacher was doing a, just doing a job versus when a teacher's heart was in it, how differently children behaved towards those teachers. I can still give you names of all the teachers that all my kids love because they would behave so differently around them and they would perform well and they would enjoy their time with the teacher. And a reward that you would give them is like, hey, if you want to eat lunch with me today, let's behave really well. And that works because the kids really want to spend time with you. And so seeing that play out in the classroom um, was like a microcosm of like how humans really work. And then when I went to Harvard Graduate School of Education, and I actually purposely chose that school because of two specific course offerings that I was really interested in, outside of, you know, everything that I took, but really it was around universal design for learning and a course called Moral Adults, Moral Children. Um, And in the universal design for learning course, it was really about um, honing in on those that are often overlooked, whether it's education or any sort of building design, anything, um, making things more accessible for them allows you to target the middle of the bell curve as well. So it's really the notion of like, let's look at the outliers um, who are on the tail ends of each side of the bell curve um, and then target those people. And then you're bound to really meet in the middle. Um, And so I always thought about, you know, who are we not thinking about? Who are we missing? Who's the voiceless that we need to give a voice to? Mm. And then in the Moral Adults, Moral Children course, really about like the impact of parents in their kids' lives, but as it plays out in education. And so obviously I can't be a mother to my students, but you do play that role often in the classroom um, and you see how the way you treat and the way you react to certain challenges really impacts children for the rest of their lives. Um, And I learned all of that in grad school. And then after graduating, I really thought I would be back in the classroom. And you started the um, episode off with asking me, where did you think you would be now? I really thought I would be um, still in the Bronx teaching these kids because I really loved them so much. And I I felt like it was my calling when I was there. Um, The reason why I pivoted was because one, I had an opportunity um, and I just needed to knock on the store and see what it it was about. And so I decided to do consulting for the state education department 
um, in all of the Northeast. And so I got to really see how the system works um, at the higher level um, and also get deflated by certain things like, okay, so this is how decisions are made. I had yeah. an inkling and it is right um, to all the way to how hard certain things are being worked and, you know, seeing glimpses of hope as well. Um, but in that work, I saw myself applying the principles of UDL, Universal Design for Learning, as well as the Moral Adults course a lot, which is just let's lead with kindness and let's think about those who we often overlook. And I saw my courses or my work or my assessments or projects really come to fruition in a different manner than it would have been if I didn't think about these principles. And so mm. I just continued to dig that same hole. Um, and here I am <laughs> doing LND many years later. So I- I'm probably going to butcher exactly the words that you use, but essentially you mentioned the idea of kind of giving a voice to the voiceless and advocating on behalf of others who potentially can't advocate for themselves. Has that been really the common link between that experience and then your passion now for DEI and what has, what have your learnings in the classroom and your education at Harvard and your experience after that in back in education consulting done to inform the way you approach DEI that perhaps is different than other leaders out there. I'm not sure if I can toot my horn to say that my values are different than other leaders, but I will say the way my mind works um, uniquely is that when I build programs um, in my L&D roles, I think about those who are going to be struggling or super bored. Those are the tail ends <laughs> of the the bell curve that I always think about. So I I always teach my team to think about, hey, we're building for the average person here, but think about, you know, who are the outliers? Um, Those who have been in the company for really long and they're like, I've done this 15 times already. Or those who are super new and it's going right over their head and they're like, I don't even know half the acronyms that you're using, right? Or it could be the folks who um, have colorblindness and you didn't think to... Think about the color schemes that you're using in your deck. Or it could be those who are in Japan and English is their absolute second language, if not just a language that they they happen to be learning and often use in business, but it's not a language they ever speak socially. And so if you start to use metaphors or American jokes or very US-centric, you know, idioms or something, it's not going to stick with them and it's not going to be as engaging. And so what are, what are the examples that we're actually using that are universal or are we actually making this accessible for those who are learning English as a second language, or they're a part of our company in a completely different world where they're actually not using Slack or they're not using Teams, uh, whatever it may be that we're thinking of using to engage the learners. So always thinking about, you know, who's going to be struggling and who's going to be bored um, mm-hmm. has always helped me create a really engaging program. So when I was on your LinkedIn, a few moments into our first call together, I mentioned the phrase empathy and kindness and said, I, I'm pretty sure that means more to you than a pithy little phrase to throw into a LinkedIn post. It seemed to be something that you just held so deeply to and was 
a phrase that acted as a lens through which you viewed the world and viewed your responsibility to the world and your role and the community around you. And, and, and so talk to me, talk to all of us about empathy and kindness. Where did that come from? You've kind of seeded some of it already, I think, but um, when did that become kind of a hallmark phrase for you and, and why? You know, I don't actually know the moment, moment when it did. I think it was probably at um, one of the conferences. I go to a lot of conferences to speak on behalf of, you know, L&D program strategies and DEI strategies. And I think there was a moment when I mentioned empathy and kindness and mid-sentence, folks started clapping. Um, and then everybody came up to me afterwards and would like hashtag empathy, kindness, or they'll come up to me and say, empathy and kindness, I'm going to keep that in my mind. And so it just kind of became my trademark in a way. And people gave me, actually, I was showing you on our, on our first call. Um, I have stickers on my laptop now from strangers <laughs> giving me, uh, empathy or kindness stickers. And I look like a fifth grader going to school with my laptop. Um, but you know, I really think it goes all the way to my upbringing um, because I was born and raised in Korea, a country where Christianity and Buddhism are embedded deeply into its culture. Um, and my parents were actually both. Um, and I grew up Catholic. My, my dad converted when, before I was born. Um, but this taught me to always be uh, respectful and kind to people nature and things alike mm. um so for example even if i threw you know i'd be playing with my dolls and like throw one like in an act and my mom would pick up the doll be like and, and she would impersonate the doll and say like i am so disappointed that you would throw me and i'm like oh my gosh <laughs> i'm so sorry and <laughs> but um you know not to guilt trip me but like showing me that i need to respect my things my belongings my possessions and my environment um, and I always um, was taught to look at those people who surround us who are often overlooked. Again, there's a theme there. And so um, I would look at those who are either cleaning the streets early in the morning on my way to school or the people who pick up garbage at my school. Um, and I would make sure to stop and say hello. And they would know my name by then. And I would thank them for their service. Um, and it was something that I was always taught to do. And so I think it stayed with me my entire life. I, I always want to know all the names of even like where I live now, you know, every single person who's ever worked in my building in any sort of way, I want to make sure I know their names and I thank them and that, you know, I thank them properly on holidays as well um, and have conversations with them. And I think that was just, I wouldn't say it was, I don't, I want to say that it's in my nature, but I do think that my upbringing really helped and my culture really helped develop that. Um, and I, seeing how much being kind can change others. So of course I've had bad interactions myself. I've had racist comments thrown at me and I don't always act the way I want to. I, and I'm not always proud of my reactions either, but when I do act out of kindness and I take a step back and I always give a second chance, um, I see what that can do. And I've seen that firsthand. And I've seen that in my classroom. I've seen that in my training. I've seen that with my direct reports who either, you know, didn't have a follow through or lied to me about something small or, you know, a colleague who made a really 
bad or conniving comment and we still work it out. And, and I see what kindness can really do. And, you know, people think it's a quote unquote soft skill. And I hate that word because Mm -hmm. it's actually a skill that you need to get better at and be on top of your mind and be focused on, because if you lose sight of it, you're, it's not like riding a bike, like you can just lose sight of it and you stop being a kind person. And I think that needs to be the central part of you. So it's pretty rare that I dive into religion on a podcast, but I have to, because <laughs> you know, you never know where it's going to go, but I get the feeling that you're kind of a an open book because you brought it up. What sort of challenges in communication or in value systems or in decisions did you see then with that upbringing of this 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 meshing of buddhist and christian uh experiences or um belief systems are, are your parents both alive i guess um but also are, are they still holding to those beliefs individually and how did you see positively or negatively their experience in, in working through those differences um impact you and, and the way you live your life now well, my father converted before I was born uh, to Catholicism. And so I never saw that struggle. If anything, he's probably the most devout in our family now um, because he would set an alarm and do prayers uh, and do rosary prayers. Um, I don't know many folks who do that. And so, you know, he'd be in the middle of driving and his alarm would go off and he would turn down the music and he would just start praying. Um, really like routine about it. And anytime we accomplished anything, my sister and I, um, my parents always attributed those successes to the God that we believe in. It wasn't ever about it's because you're so wonderful or it's because you were born this way, or it's because I brought you up a certain way. It was never about us. Um, and of course, like they would still reward us and 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 compliment us and do all the celebrations as you you think good great parents would do. But it was always about the higher being, and it was you know you did have so much help a- along the way. Think about your managers, your colleagues, your friends, our family, and it was never um, taken for granted that there were successes or accomplishments in our lives. Nothing is ever done alone, and they made sure that we knew that. Um, and so those people who work in the shadows, as I mentioned before, whether it's cleaning the streets or taking out your garbage, I couldn't be living the way I do now without their work. Um, it's like the same notion of, um, a lot of Asian parents would say, eat every single grain of rice on your bowl. If you even have one, it's like, why didn't you eat that? It's like, eat what, what are you looking at? And you see like a tiny speck of a grain of rice and, I was brought up, and I think a lot of Asian listeners would agree, um, every grain of rice was equivalent to the tears and sweat of a farmer who worked really hard to make sure that that grain of rice got to your table. And so it's slightly guilt-trippy if you think about it, because it's, well, if I'm full, like, do I really have to force myself to eat? But it was always like, only take what you can eat and be responsible and be grateful that this is in front of you because there's a lot of work that goes into this being brought to your table outside of your mother actually, or father cooking things for you. Um, And so having that notion of like empathy, even at the dinner table of like, 
yeah, what would they think if they saw that I left a spoonful of rice on my bowl? That's their tears and sweat. Like I can't mm-hmm. do that. And so like forcing myself to have that last bite. Um, it's the same thing with everything else in life. I wonder how much of your Christian upbringing then and your background, because I hope you don't mind me saying this according to your LinkedIn, you're, you're pretty open about being a Bible study leader and being pretty involved in the church yourself. You know, I think about a Bible verse, Colossians 3.12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What impact has your own faith then brought into your empathy and kindness mentality? And I think for a lot of people with that background, and just for, for clarity, myself included, that a lot of people with that background, it, it is your worldview, it is your lens, it is the way you operate. And so do you feel like, even though perhaps it's not overt in your language, that it's being in some sense lived out through those values that you bring into the professional workplace? Absolutely. You know, I would say it took some time before I married the two, as in, you know, I live a certain way at church and then making sure that that kind of bled into my relationships with my friends and family and then letting that bleed also into my career took some time. It was always, you know, church time is church time and then Bible study is Bible study. And then I kind of forget everything that I was told and taught and then I live kind of differently. Um, so it took time for all of that to kind of, um, be a cohesive alignment. And I think that happens with a lot of professionals, um, in the early days, I think you're also still finding yourself as, you know, what kind of professional am I Mm -hmm. anyway? And so it, it took time for me to realize that I can actually safely bring this in, in a form of empathy and kindness, which really just entailed listening to others keenly and actively mentoring and encouraging people as at any point when there's an opportunity to do so, um, building bonding and trust and making sure that you're valuing people's wellness more than just work um, and practicing gratitude and humility in front of others. My email sign off has always been with gratitude or with love, um, even in a professional setting. Um, And that's like my little way of saying, like, I really do appreciate you. Um, I say, I, I try to say thank you a lot. And I, I try to give people credit for their work more than sometimes, um, more than sometimes uh, what they would like, because it's like, oh my gosh, you've said that 50 times now. <laughs> um, yeah. Being vulnerable uh, in settings where not everybody is, because that feels psychological safety, um, rewarding and modeling kindness. Um, as a leader goes a really long way. I can say that, um, you know, I can pinpoint to you all the moments when something bad happened or a a change that happened that kind of like shook the company where like I went in as a leader of my team to lead with kindness conversations and like, you know, really honing in on my empathy to make sure that we were all being vulnerable together, that they felt psychologically safe. Um, so that I'm really managing the change management of things, even outside of what the company is asking me to do, because I want them to know that like I am here for them. Um, and then one last thing I will add is even in the last team that I managed, I think I had about 10 direct reports. We still have our text group that we still text almost every month and we check in and on each other. 
Um, we are each other's support group. We are each other's references. Uh, we share links with each other. We share life updates with each other. And I've mm. told them from day one of either hiring them or taking them from other teams onto mine. <laughs> from day one, I told them, like, I am in this for your career, not just for our company. And this relationship is going to last a lifetime. And so if anything ever changes where you're looking for another role or you're starting to get bored or something is frustrating you, I want you to come to me and I'm going to be the first to help you with those things, whether it means looking for something else or helping you rebuild your resume or being your reference. I want us to have an open conversation about things like that. And in turn, that actually usually meant that nobody actually wants to leave. Um, they'll just be open with me about things that they want or are frustrated yeah. by and we'll just have a really, really positive relationship. And so their role is always what they want. Um, and so I just saw a lot of that play. And so leaning on kindness at work has such huge benefits um, personally that I've seen. I So it reminds me of, I think I, I, think I even posted about this today on LinkedIn a little while ago, but... Um, I have eight core values for my team. If we're all on this team together. These are the things that matter that I'm going to lead with and own. And I, I'm going to mention one of them because it's kind of piggybacking what you said, but it's development. And the phrase is, we seek to develop our people to maximize their careers and fulfillment with us, but we bless them if they choose to leave. And to me, that's super important is that like, I'm in it, like you said, I'm in it for your career. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm right next to you. Like your success is my success. I truly only want you to be the best version of yourself. But if you choose to leave, like, I'm not going to hold you back. I'm not going to badmouth you. I'm not going to make it hard on you. I'm, it's like, I am blessing you as you go. I'll be a reference for mm -hmm. you, provide you do great work while you were here, of course. Um, but uh, no, that's, that's really good to hear. And I think that's... Um, it's, it's really important. And it's something that I think more leaders need to do is, is bless those when they leave, because I've seen the power of the network continue to be a value to me in my own career. In fact, the, the position I'm in right now only came to me because someone I hadn't worked with in eight or nine years called me and said, Hey, are you looking for a job? And I went, sure, let's hear, let's hear all about it. Uh, so it's really cool that you're keeping those relationships close and um, <laughs> that, that, that they're continuing to be of value to you. Cause it just shows the sort of person you are and the sort of heart you have for those around you. I know we're already, I cannot believe it. We're already a half hour into this conversation. So I want, I do need to ask you some more questions, Esther, but I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the vulnerability, uh, if you will, that you you've had, um, speaking of that vulnerability, how do you manifest that? Like, what is your best practice that you could share with others when it comes to Riding that line between being that confident, inspiring leader while also being vulnerable and talking about the things that you're struggling with or don't understand or are struggling to, to solve or resolve in your own role. This was something that I really struggled with. So I hope that the listeners will take a lot away from my experience. Um, so I didn't always used to be vulnerable. If anything, I was like the most guarded and you didn't know anything about my personal life. I never opened my social media to my colleagues. If a manager asked me, I would be like, I'm not on social media. Please don't talk to me. <laughs> um, I used to be that person. And I actually even be, like to a point that I would rather work than to go out to lunch with my colleagues. Like I was really bad about it. Um and it wasn't until I, I volunteered for more and more years at places like the Opportunity Network, my church Bible study group that you mentioned, and the 
you know, places like the Best Buddies program. I always volunteered uh, throughout my life in different forms. And in those programs, um, I realized the importance of building a psychological safe environment in order to build true relationships that are built on a foundation of trust. And I never really knew how to do that. I thought I could just like ask the right questions and listen and that it would come naturally. It wasn't until multiple brave souls in those programs shared their own stories vulnerably with me and the group that it clicked with me that being vulnerable is the best way to create that sense of psychological safety. So it was the notion of like, if I trust my audience first, they are bound to build their trust towards me too. You're seeing a side of them that's human. You're seeing that they are trusting you. You, that person who was vulnerable first has just set the tone that like, you know what, this is a small close knit circle and I'm trusting you with this information. I don't even have to say this stays in this room. I'm just telling you that I'm going to be vulnerable because I know that you are all going to take it with gentleness and kindness. Um, And once I noticed that, it was like I ran with it in my Bible study groups. um, And I want to apologize to the first two groups that I ever led because I was never vulnerable. I was like, nope, nobody's going to know about me. I'm going to read you verses and I'm going to teach you what I'm supposed to teach you. Um, the third, fourth, fifth, you know, all the groups beyond that. Once I started being more, more vulnerable, the culture changed. We still keep in touch. Folks were sharing details about their lives that I would never hear in the early on days. Mm -hmm. And so I started to realize that like, it really has to start with me first. And so those who are struggling, like I was back in the day in how do I guard myself more so that people can only see me as a professional People don't want to see you only as a professional. The more human you become, the more people will trust you and a better leader you will become. Um, Some of the best moments of COVID you've, I'm sure, heard is like when the kids show up in the Zoom room or you see dogs popping up or they're barking and you're like, oh my gosh, this CEO has a dog I didn't know about. Or this CTO actually has two kids that I never knew about. Um, And starting to talk about that, it kind of takes the intimidation factor down, one. And then two, you're like bound to connect on a human level that you wouldn't have otherwise. And that's such a small form of vulnerability. But I would say Mm -hmm. if you actually choose to be vulnerable and you're picking your own words and you're choosing the right experience to share, that's even more powerful than a dog or a child showing up in the background of your Zoom. No, it's well said. I remember, and this is going toward the Bible study thing, I guess, as well. But I, I've I've led a few different, you know, small group Bible study things in my history. And um, I think the last two or three, I made the specific bold statement as we began and to set the tone for the whole thing to be like, listen, we shouldn't even be here if we're not going to be real about who we are. And if you're here to like just... Like, as you mentioned, and I've been that person too, just like be the perfect Christian or say the right things and read the verses and then go home. And like that, that's not what we're here for. We're going to get dirty and we're going to talk about our crap and we're going to be real with each other. And I know every one of you, and I look specifically at the guys in the room because I'm a guy and I know what guys struggle with and things like that. I look at each of them and, and I said, uh, if you're waiting to hear someone else's story, about how crappy they are as a person, I'm just going to give you mine right now. 
Um, because when you hear mine, you'll be comfortable opening up about yours, I promise. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so to me, that's really important is to, whether it's professionally or personally like that, is to set the tone to say, I'm human, I struggle, I don't have all the answers. And you can feel free to also be human and struggle, not all the, have, have all the answers. And if we're all in it together, professionally, personally, wherever, whatever community we're a part of, we can collectively figure it out and move forward and, and win, right? It's when we're not vulnerable, when we hold those things in, when we're not comfortable bringing up the thing that we're afraid of or whatever it may be, that that stifles that innovation, that growth, and that culture that we ultimately want to create. And so um, I love that. And to bring it back to our our um, culture in the office, actually, mm. when I took that notion of vulnerability back to my team and I actually opened up with, you know, here speaking to the weakness piece that you were just saying, um, I always led my team with openness about my weaknesses, if you will. And I would tell them, hey, here are two things you really need to know about me that I struggle with that I need your help on. One, please do not call me out of the blue because I've been in four or five layoffs in my life and any sort of unprecedented calls Uh equals some sort of craziness that I'm about to get into or like you're having a fire to put out and it makes me nervous. Give me context before you call me, even if it's like a smiley face. Um, Secondly, uh, when I get stressed, I can seem really micromanagey. And, you know, the moment you start to feel like, hey, Esther's been kind of micromanagey lately. Why is she asking for like all of these things and checking in on me? It means I'm stressed. Mm -hmm. Call me out on it. Seriously. And just say, hey, I think you're stressed. Wink, wink. Like, that's all it takes. And I'll, you know, I'll kind of take a step back and say, you're right. I am stressed. I trust you. I'm sorry I came off micromanagey. This is what I'm going through. And I'll share with my team exactly what I'm going through, whether it's workload or my personal life or what have you. Yeah. Um, And it was just so powerful. People did call me out on it and it helped me. And I would step back and say, you know what? I'm going to take take two hour wellness break because you're right. Like I am really stressed and I don't mean to show you this trust right now. Um, Or people would actually tell me themselves to, you know, Hey, I think you need to go for a walk with your dog because you're not having a good day. Um, It's so helpful. And then now it's a, it's a conversation that we can both have. So when I call people out, it's not because I am their manager or leader or because I think something about them. It's, it goes both ways. We're just trying to help each other. And it comes from, again, empathy and kindness. Hmm. Well, I, mean, I can tell you right now what the title of the podcast will be. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's I love that so much because it is all encompassing. And it does have such a ripple effect across literally every community we could find ourselves to be a part of. So uh, I want to end here with a couple more questions. And um, the first one's very open-ended and the next one will be um, the final one. But What's something that you wish I asked you about today that I didn't ask you about that you would just love to talk about? Wow. Um, so many, to be honest, that I, I, I think we can talk for hours of, on this topic, but really taking it back to the leaders um, who are currently doing this work, you know, how do we make sure that people are kind and empathetic at companies, especially when there's been multiple rounds of layoffs lately. Mm. And even for those who are staying, they're dealing with change management or lack thereof. And so how do you keep that morale up? um, And how do we work around that? 
And so my answer to that is, um, and this is um, kind of pulling from James White's uh, book on DEI called Anti-Racist Leadership, where he actually talks about kindness training uh, in one of the chapters. And it was like a light bulb going off, like, oh, he's heard me. <laughs> We're in the same <laughs> boat. Like, we, you know, like, I, I feel so heard. Um, but he also talks about the fact that, you know, the way you would launch a product with careful planning and timelines and cadence and stakeholder buy-in and like market research you would do the same thing when you launch kindness and empathy training and you would start with middle managers because they go up and down and they are the, yeah, they have that effect uh, in both directions. And so making sure that you have stakeholder buy-in, making sure that you have careful planning and you're teaching these quote unquote soft skills as if they are hard skills, as if they're skills mm. that you can cert- give certificates on, as if they're skills that you actually need to put KPIs to, right? Because in the end, these are the two skills um, that, you know, being kind and being able to be empathetic these are the skills that are going to one retain your talent because you have great managers and two make sure that your managers become amazing leaders and three build your culture to one that people are proud of and want to be loyal to and four and this is probably the most important to our leaders is you're going to have a high performing team because they're trusting each other collaborating they're addressing weaknesses from a place of kindness rather than, you know, I'm going to dock you points for this or mm-hmm. you're going to be demoted. Um, all of these come into play. And so kindness and empathy being in, in the center of every company's value and mission. Can you imagine what the world would be like if every company operated this way or if every leader or even every manager making sure that they, you know, acted upon kindness and empathy always? what the world would be like, what our, what our performance would be like, what company cultures would be like. I, I think it's possible. Uh, it's a beautiful sentiment, but also a beautiful future that we could actually collectively shoot for. And, you know, McCann is what, 15,000 employees or so? I think we're at 22,000. Okay, I'm yeah, you guys, are, you guys are huge Please now. don't we, quote me on that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll say 20 for round numbers. You know, if you think about the the, the impact of 20,000 people out there living empathy and kindness, right? And the impact that you can within the organization drive to all of their subsequent communities. Imagine, you know, a family of four and then their immediate neighbors and then their communities that they're a part of, whether it's church or sporting leagues or whatever it may be. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people can be impacted every day by the culture you create at McCann. And it's a, it's a wonderful, inspiring outcome to shoot for, but also a weighty leadership um, focus to have burning, burdening you every day as well, that whatever you do, good or bad, will have a ripple effect, a compound effect everywhere around you. And so to know that there are people like you at the helm of, of, significant opportunities to impact company culture is so encouraging to me because I think I look around the world and think it's a nastier place than it was when I was a kid. It's got more divisive struggles and anger and resentment on many sides of political and social spectrums. And 
uh, if we can be um, just two little people in a sea of opportunity to make that ripple effect, you know, it's it's wonderful to know there are others who are like-minded in that regard. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful to have had this chance to talk to you today. Oh, I'm so humbled and super grateful that you reached out. And this conversation, I don't think is going to stop here. And I, I look forward to conversing with you again soon. Me too. Well, let's add on one last co- a question. And that is, what's something that you believe at the core of who you are, Esther, that everyone else believed too would make this world a better place? And I imagine it's probably going to come back to maybe empathy and kindness. But how would you answer that question? I think it just comes down to um, gratitude, actually. Okay. And um, I was just reading this new book that Oprah wrote with, you know, the guy who did Science of Happiness at uh, Harvard Business School. i sorry, I forgot the author's name. Um, but they were also talking about like the power of gratitude. Mm-hmm. And we, we've thrown that word out so much in the last five years that it might seem like an eye-rolling uh, moment of, yeah, I know, like I'm supposed to be grateful for what I have. But it's really just more than that. I think it's yeah. really, truly believing that, um, you're here because of all the amount of things that happened and people around you, but also being grateful for yourself. This is who you are. And so owning that and being grateful that you can have these moments and that you're overcoming certain challenges and um, having a really positive outlook because you're able to, it all comes back down to gratitude, which is why, again, I sign off with, with gratitude and, um, in all of my emails. And so I guess this is my sign off as well. So it's, it's just been a grateful journey to get to know you and to um, converse with you on this topic. Well, Esther, it goes both ways. And uh, thank you so much for entrusting an hour of your life to this podcast today. Um, and the the time we spoke even beforehand to a stranger you've never met who's poking you on LinkedIn going, I think we might have a good conversation if we got to know each other. And I'm really glad that we were both right in that assumption. So, um, you know, I'm leaving today with a lot of takeaways, uh, empathy and kindness, uh, continuing to be one of them, gratitude being another, um, but also just the mutual encouragement of knowing that there are people out there doing wonderful, wonderful things at at a really big scale. And the hope that that gives me for the future of our world um, that we can hopefully co-create together. So thank you for being here, Esther. Thank you for those listening. I hope you've been similarly impacted today. And uh, you'll, you'll tune in next week for the next episode of the Frontline Industry Podcast. We'll see you next time. I'm going to end this podcast a little differently than usual because I just want to say thank you. This podcast now consistently reaches every continent on earth. Together, you and I, we're actually making a difference with our passion for leadership and for creating healthy company cultures. As we enter 2024, I'm not taking my foot off the gas, and I hope you won't either. For having even more incredible guests, I never expected to be able to interview, and I'm so thrilled to have you on this journey with me. See you next year, my friend.